What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, I sat down with Elliot Roth, founder of Spira, a startup growing algae to be used in protein pharmaceuticals, plastics, and pigments. In this episode, we'll talk about Elliot's personal journey of growing his own spirulina algae while he was food insecure, how algae can replace harmful petrochemicals found in our clothes and food, and the future of hyper-local distributed food systems. This podcast is brought to you by Hungry, a media and research platform dedicated to the intersection of food and technology. For more information, please visit Hungry.tv, that's Hungry with no U, and click subscribe to join the weekly newsletter. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and welcoming me into your laboratory here. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, from humble beginnings, I guess. Okay, so you have a really fascinating background. I would love for you to talk about your personal experience with food security that brought you to algae and um, what that experience of growing it and eating it for two and a half months, I believe, what that was like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was in a really crappy, what's the cursing? Oh, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> we'll just market uh, a YouTube <laughs> well, over 18. I was, I was in a real shitty situation post-undergrad. And I had set up this laboratory and I was fiddling around in the lab. And um, I don't know, like so many of my 22-year-old friends at the time, they were all moving back home with their parents. Mm-hmm. If like half of all millennials still live with their parents, which is ridiculous. And so I was, I was kind of... Not not to say my parents were bad people or anything like that. My mom was like, come home, like the overbearing Jewish mother that she was. She was like, come home, <laughs> like, let me take care of you. And I was like, no, 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 mom, like I can figure it out. And I had this laboratory that I built in undergrad, just like dumpster diving for equipment and put it together in a friend's garage space. And I was like, all right, you know, I can use this lab, do some consulting projects, make enough money to actually support myself. Turns out that I couldn't make enough money to support myself. I had some clients that never paid me. I had some contracts that fell through. And I I started couch surfing. And the only thing left that I really had, I had like negative $17 in my bank account at one point. I was subsisting on my my friend's inspired subscription to Soylent. Oh, well, then... Another friend worked as the manager at Panera, so I'd pop on by and get Ed to give me a bag of bagels while I could, and then whatever I could find behind, like, the food lion. It's like perfectly good food that people were just tossing. Yeah, 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 all this food waste. But but it kind of occurred to me, I was like, hey, like, I have this laboratory. Mm -hmm. I might as well try to figure out if I can do something that meets all my basic nutritional needs. Right. I have this tiny space. It was like 800 square feet garage space Mm -hmm. that we converted. And uh, I have a background in, like, genetic synthetic biology should be able to figure out like what is something that I could grow right. that meets my nutritional requirements because like that's my only cost if I'm living on couches and right. I I like looked around and I'm a big space geek so I grew I grew up going to Space Coast Florida my my grandma and my dad's side of the family is like from Space Coast and so every winter I would be there like watching rockets go off and all sorts of stuff like that so I was like all right you know like NASA has had to have solved this in some kind of way. Right. Tiny space, no resources, no money, you know, whatever. Growing it on waste, what exists that could provide for nutritional needs. And uh, initially I was like, oh, you know, like vertical farming, it was the big craze back in 2016. And I was thinking like maybe that could provide for nutritional needs. And 
sounds expensive. It's like <laughs> expensive and like micronutrients, sure, but like everything else, nah, not really. And what I was looking at in terms of my total cost, I like made some spreadsheets. I was like, all right, you know, what I really want is something that's akin to Soylent that I can grow myself. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the cost was going to come from mostly protein. Protein mm-hmm. is one of the most expensive macro ingredients. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, what what is this out there? And what can I grow that can meet my protein requirements? And I came across algae in this NASA research. And I'm like, I can grow this. And it was It was in the middle of a blizzard in like January of 2016 mm-hmm. when I ordered my first starter culture from somebody out in California who was growing it. And I got my starter culture in the mail, probably like as the snow was melting and started growing it late January, early February. And this was about seven years ago now. And uh, I took like these aquarium tanks I got donated from friends. And these are like 10 gallon aquarium tanks. And I had probably like 12 of them or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, at least when I was getting started, and then I got some bigger ones. But I would take big scoops of algae out of these aquarium tanks. I got like a little aquarium bubbler. You just need some salt to get it going. Mm-hmm. And then whatever, like distilled water or something like that. Mm-hmm. We already had a water system set up in the lab. And so I was getting it started and growing it and uh, having this like mesh net that I would dip in and squeeze it out. You kind of like squeeze it sort of like cottage cheese or like when you're making cheese. This is spirulina, right? Spirulina, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so I would strain it and squeeze it out and I would get like this big ball, like this big clump of it and sort of, sort of cheesy, sort of, uh, but like most of the water removed, maybe about 30% moisture content. And I would take that and I would eat that either just like plain, I would just mm-hmm. toss it, you know, <laughs> just straight eat it. Okay. Um, or like I said, I would use it as a spread or you like add it to water, make right. it into a smoothie. Or um, some of the other things I would do is I would like try different experiments, like cook with it, see what happens if I bake it or other things like that. So that's how I got started. And I did that. I mean, every day I would go in and I would take another tank, right? And so I tried to do- a day's worth. Yeah, yeah, as a day's worth. And it took about probably like a week to replenish or so. But I was getting like a big glob of it out of each of the tanks. And uh, I did that as kind of my main protein for a couple of months. And then I was, I was talking to everybody. I was like, hey, everybody, you should grow algae and be free. And like, you don't wow. need that much space or resources to do it. Yeah. And uh, I started getting involved in the farmer's market circuit and then wow. starting to reach out to people in accelerator programs and in incubators because I'd always been interested in business as a force for change in the world and impact. And I figured, you know, if I was making a significant impact, like eating all of this, I wasn't worried too much about rent at the time. I was just living with friends, bouncing around. And so, yeah, my my costs were virtually nothing. I was fully self-actualized however I could. And I really wanted to go about spreading what I discovered in terms of algae and and Mm eating algae with everybody possible. Wow. I love that. I mean, really dog fooding your own product and really understanding like the the needs here. Yeah, people, um, I've talked to investors and told them that story and they were like, well, you know, you don't have to be ramen profitable anymore. (laughs) You can just like eat your own algae, (laughs) that good green, get high on my own supply, I guess. It's just, I mean, like I, the, the key learning in all of that though was that like fresh algae has no taste. Mm-hmm. And so like my aha moment in in that experience was like, okay, you know, I tried the powdered stuff initially because mm-hmm. it was, it was going to be easier to just get the powdered stuff and mix it into a smoothie or something mm-hmm. like that. That's what Soylent does, right? Like you have this powder, mm-hmm. blend it up, whatever. 
And so I initially got the powdered stuff, but I tried that compared to the fresh stuff I was growing. And I was like, wow, like the powdered stuff is this bitter, alkaline, mommy, kind of like nasty, oceanic tasting thing. And the fresh stuff kind of is like nutty, almost like like blended avocado. It's just got this like very interesting, like mouthfeel texture, cheesiness to it. And so I was like, okay, this is like a world of difference. What's going on here? And in particular, I did a deep dive into the flavor genetics and into the like background of the olfactory pathways and everything else that's produced yeah. in spirulina and what happens when it's processed and degrades in a particular way. Right. And that's what led to a bunch of insights about pulling out the pigments, leaving a protein, being able to work with that protein, being able to have this like pigment that could serve as a replacement for artificial colors. But like that initial aha, I didn't come back around to that until probably like a year and a half later or something like that. But you, you know, the, the powder stuff you would have had to have bought, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was, it was like pretty expensive at the time because right. this, this stuff is coming from mostly overseas, importing into the yeah. United States and uh, grown by smallhold farmers all over the world. So I think people are definitely familiar with seaweed, but I guess break down algae as a king, you know, as a kingdom, right? Sure. And tell, give us the layman kind of definition of algae and also maybe talk about how the protein completeness of like the all the amino acids that could really help us, uh, you know, use this as an alternative protein. Yeah, of course. Um, so algae is kind of like a generic. Uh, it's really any algae is kind of classified as any aquatic species, anything that that grows in water. And so that could either mean uh, one of three things. So either you have uh, macroalgae, like seaweed, kelp, nori, dulse, uh, different kind of species that grow off the coast of the ocean on the continental shell. They end up growing in ocean water and salt water and then getting light from the sun and growing and doing that kind of thing. Then you have uh, microalgae, which are eukaryotic. And mm-hmm. so those microalgae end up having a nucleus. They end up going through uh, division, my- mitotic division, and everything associated with having the nucleus itself. And then you have cyanobacteria, and cyanobacteria are more like bacteria that can photosynthesize. And so each of these three categories, we can label the generic algae under each of those. Mm-hmm. And one of the best things about focusing in on this particular type of, of food source is that it really is the original food source for the planet. So back about 2.5 billion years ago, uh, we had one of the first extinction events happen. So, like, imagine the Earth is like this big, soupy mix and very hot, very, like, lots of chemicals, um, lots of heat going on. And you had a lot of, uh, a lot of organisms that subsisted on these, like, heat and chemical reaction. And then all of a sudden, like, one of the organisms mutated and evolved photosynthesis. And then it started consuming CO2 because there was this big excess CO2 all around it and then giving out oxygen. And so by consuming that CO2, giving off the oxygen, it started multiplying, multiplying more and more. That oxygen is really toxic to all of these other anaerobic bacteria, right? That were all around it. And so the first photosynthetic organisms gave rise to the, the first great extinction event and all of the oxygen that we currently breathe. So 20% of the air around us is oxygen. Most of that stems from uh, cyanobacteria or algae that was, that was birthed in the fires of the initial stages of Earth. And that cyanobacteria is like, fundamental base level of the food pyramid provides tons of nutrition for higher orders of organisms. So like the plants that we eat are just very complicated 
mutated over time cyanobacteria that initially was was founded in the beginnings of Earth. So back to your original question about nutrition, uh, in particular, a lot of the species of algae that we focus on, because they're the foundational base of the food pyramid, they also make up the majority of the macros and the micros that we need as a means of like supplying our own nutrition. Uh, they're as close you can get to direct energy transfer from the sun as possible in order to produce the basic ingredients that we end up using. So the spirulina that we end up growing and uh, working with farmers to produce, that has uh, something on the order of all essential amino acids. Uh, it's got a really balanced amino acid profile as well. Um, it has 13 vitamins, eight minerals. Um, most of your recommended daily amounts of all of your micronutrient uh, requirements as well. Amazing. Wow. So this is like the most efficient form of protein, it sounds like, if you're talking about the closest thing to getting energy from the sun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the one thing that I would say could potentially leapfrog, there's, there's probably two things, actually. One of them is humans being able to photosynthesize. And there was this really fun paper by Christina Agapakis back in like, I think like tens or something like that, where she calculated that it would take the surface area of a basketball court for a human to photosynthesize directly from the sun and get all your energy from the sun. So probably not going to happen anytime soon. But the uh, second thing would be any sort of cell-free synthesis. So doing it without all of the cellular mechanics or machinery, being able to say, hey, like, let's go from a photon, hydrogen, carbon, and like produce something out of that. We're a little bit far off from that. I think also the energy required to like get over that hurdle is necessitated by enzymes and a cell produces those enzymes already. So there, there are a couple of ways that might be able to get even more efficient, but it should be told, I think just relying on what nature already has produced as a really efficient method of transferring light energy into foodstuffs is really beneficial. And we, we see that with plants already, like any plant-based foods, plant-based meats, all of that is kind of relying on one of the, the one of the lower levels of the food ecosystem. It's just, I'm, I'm trying to take it even lower than that, you know? What, when you talk about this food pyramid, yeah, can, like, can you help us uh, actually visualize like what's at the top and what's at the bottom? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, think of this like any kind of food web or trophic pyramid is what it's called. Okay. Trophic levels are, are just a biological concept to say, what is the energy transfer? And so if you're going from the sun, which is really the base level right. of everything, like the earth really subsists on the basis of the energy we get from the sun. Well, the organisms that are in direct contact with that sunlight then feed energy up from the sun to get to us. And so when you're thinking of like plants, they are receiving light from the sun. Mm -hmm. We then end up eating animals that eat those right. plants, which is a little bit less efficient than just eating the plants themselves. And so to, to that point, like the lower that we get in the right. like food pyramids or food webs, right. um, the more efficient we are at producing the base level nutrition that we need to survive. Fascinating. And so at the top is animals because animals graze on the plants that... Right. Right. And so there, there are some, there are some that uh, diets and other things like that. I don't want to be exclusionary or anything like that. I think that any um, omnivorous diet really requires diversity, especially right. because you want to make sure that your gut mi microbiome is diverse. You want to make sure that you're subsisting on uh, things in a seasonal manner too, yeah. or, or localized manner. And so in particular, when I take a look at what we can provide, 
is a steady source of baseline nutrition that replaces and displaces more harmful sources of nutrition in a more localized fashion. So, I mean, my dream with Spira is to go about displacing many of these more harmful supply chains and working on more localized food structures so that we never have to worry about people ever needing to struggle to survive. Like food is and, and should be a basic human right to be able to have your baseline nutritional needs met. No one should be starving in the United States. No one should be starving in the world. Totally. Yeah. So a lot of what I've done in the past also has been working towards that overall. Fascinating. So yeah, I would love for you to like talk about all these different applications, I guess, current and potential. Sure. So the story with current. Uh, and then maybe you can t tell us about the dye in your hair. Yeah. yeah. And the story behind that. Um, so, okay. So um, what we've been working on currently in particular is more angled towards a problem that I see in food business models just in general. So one of the key challenges that I see with food companies that are trying to get started mm -hmm. is that they're competing with entrenched industries mm -hmm. that have the ability to command a much uh, lower price point. Right. And in, in the event of like any kind of economic hardship or anything like that, people immediately go to what is the cheapest, what is the most mm -hmm. cost effective to get like calories in the door. And we have these entrenched um, agriculture, like industrial agriculture systems that are going to be really hard to undo or redo. And so in particular, what my team has started taking a look at, rather than going directly towards plant-based protein, uh -huh. which already we have very cheap sources of pea, soy protein, um, other kinds of different plant protein that is out there. Instead of adding into the mix, I think of it kind of like a new standard of like USB, <laughs> like you have all these different standards of things you're trying to share, and they're all just doing the same kind of thing. Right. Instead, what I thought we would do is something really unique and differentiated in the sense of replacing artificial dyes and colors. And in particular, because you only need a tiny amount of artificial dye in order to make a real impact. So when you look at all these different artificial dyes and colors in food products, most of them are derived from something called coal tar. Mm. And coal tar... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's in my shampoo. Yeah, it's, it's in my dandruff shampoo. The, the bottom of the barrel, right? Like if you're, if you're using like yeah. something like Celsin Blue, right? Like it uses blue dye number one, blue dye number two, right? So that's in food products, that's in cosmetics, that's in clothing dyes. All of this is made from artificial colors that are derived from petrochemicals. And uh, you see this in the, like the rainbow shimmer on top of asphalt after it rains or like that iridescent shine gasoline. All of that is what you're consuming. And so... When you take a look at like Halloween and you look at a kid's candy basket and you realize like they're choking down coal, coal tar all the time and realize that parents have started to recognize this and started to say, hey, like this is enough. We shouldn't have this in our supply chain. So um, one of the great things about working with photosynthesis and photosynthetic organisms, they naturally use all the colors of the rainbow to absorb sunlight. And so we can tap into the different species of algae that are growing that already naturally produce these colors and these pigments as a means of displacing these artificial dyes. Um, we started in food, we're going into cosmetics right now, eventually with the goal of reaching textiles. But um, one of the core challenges here of any natural dye in particular is that it needs to have the same impact, the same effects as an artificial dye. So a lot of what we do in the laboratory is do uh, protein engineering and genetic engineering on the pigments themselves so that they're color fast, so that they're stable, so that they're able to be used in high temperatures, acidic environments, 
so that when you pick the flavor of Gatorade and you pick your specific color of favorite Gatorade, yeah. you can say like, oh yeah, you know, the red. It's like, you know, for sure that you're not eating like leftover oil gunk. <laughs> so like that's, that's kind of the main point. Um, we focused on these figments because it's something really high value and low volume that we can sell the very beginning as a means of getting the company started, starting to turn a profit and uh, sustain ourselves as we drive towards um, kind of larger bulk supply. And then what what are you looking, like you're going to start with the pigments and then the next applications would, would be yeah. algae-based algae meat and herd, so, whatever, I mean, plant-based. Potentially, like one of, one of the key things that I take a look at is um, it's kind of like the, the Tesla Roadster approach, right? You're yeah. going to start out something pretty high value right. and come down the cost curve over time right. as you get more and more volume. And so when we're taking a look at this business model, I start out with pigments and sure. like flavor ingredients, different kind of texturizers, uh, things that can add like to scent and fragrances. Yeah. Uh, and then coming on down even further, industrial enzymes, things that are used in the production of like cheeses mm -hmm. or things that are used in different kind of um, kind of food preparation, especially. And then after that, then that's when we start getting into edible proteins and okay. bulk supply. And then even beyond that, because we're trying to use all parts of the algae that we're producing, yeah. and pigments are a small fraction, and then you have proteins, you have lipids, you have carbohydrates, yeah. and we can start getting into other sort of macro ingredients and other kind of markets as well. So my team has a strong background in genetics, and we also have a strong background in chemical engineering. And that key background is to focus on... Um, Kind of like using all parts of the buffalo, you want to yeah. use all parts of your organism, all parts of the algae. Uh, we start with pigments, we go towards proteins. Eventually, I'm hoping to hit plastics and then other specialty pharmaceuticals and other ingredients. Wow. So like the four P's of algae, I guess. Pharmaceuticals, plastics, proteins, and pigments. Pigments. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Mm -hmm. Plastics, I, I had no idea. Yeah. Lots of, uh, I mean, like when you think of, let's say like corn, as an example, right? It's got quite a bit of carbohydrates in there. And so all of those sugars can either be turned into something like high fructose corn syrup or corn stalks are processed now into biocombustibles, And they're used as kind of like leftover additives or, or blending agents or other things like that to create the different kind of bioplastics that we use in cutlery or single use plastics. Amazing. So I guess give us like the Spira high level pitch and what your business model is. Who are you working with today and yeah. you're allowed to say? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, key to what we're trying to do is really reinvent the supply chain. And so very, very high level, we work on displacing extractive industries, stuff like people, stuff like industries like oil and gas, um, other things of that nature, in order to uh, produce a regenerative supply chain, something in which that we can displace uh, harmful compounds and uh work on genetically engineering these different compounds and materials so that we can actually enable an even better world than we could have ever imagined. So it's kind of like enabling that solar punk future of sorts that uh, I think that everybody really wants to happen. And the clear path to me is basically tapping into uh, these tiny self-replicating machines, these, these little um, algae organisms that have the ability of consuming CO2 and turning it into stuff, right? So, um, I mean, I would say some of the, the companies and clients that we worked with, we worked with some pretty big brands across the spectrum. I mean, we did a work with Molson Coors, Colgate. Uh, we've done a little work with Kellogg. 
Um, we've done work with big fashion brands, uh, small ones too. We've done work with BMW. We did a cool project with them as well. Uh, so quite a few companies that you probably heard of, and then many companies you probably haven't heard of, but will, I hope, hear from in the future. Uh, we've sent out thousands and thousands of samples now. Uh, our client list is now a couple thousand long as well. And so many of them are just now dipping their toes in and experimenting. And so we're really looking to scale all of this up in the future. And it's all for the use case right now, just to be clear, around pigment. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Just, just around pigments currently. A lot of our research and development goes into uh, improving upon the pigments that we currently offer. So we now have a full color spectrum of pigments. We have um, RGB, right, uh, and yellow. So we are about to release some new pigments coming on up as well. Uh, we have some of them coming in. And then beyond pigments, we're starting to get at um, these more engineered materials and proteins, like the different things that would then help aid in the construction of something like an algae burger. I'll see what you're talking about. Yes, I have tried that at Kua Burger. Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah. 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 Um, what's kind of crazy is that there's a bit of an algae mafia. Like we all know each other a little bit. Yeah. So you, it's, it, if you, if you met one of us and you ask like, Hey, do you know Elliot? They'll probably say, yeah, you know, I've talked to him before. Yeah. When I was getting started, I talked to all of these different algae companies to see why they failed as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the key lessons learned is that sort of business model approach of right. you're producing a product, start with something high end. Totally. And then work your way down. Right. I mean, yeah, it's the total, I think Peter Thiel, uh, you know, that whole approach of, you know, start with the Model S and move to the Model 3, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned something about carbon negative. Um, I would love for you to talk about, like, why growing al algae is a more environmentally friendly process than other you know, protein sources. And sure. Yeah, talk to us about a lot. Yeah, I mean, algae is incredibly efficient at absorbing CO2. Um by some metrics, about half of the weight of algae is carbon, right? And so what that means is that as we grow algae, and, and just to keep it in people's minds, it's in these big ponds. Mm -hmm. So we're growing most of our algae in these very shallow ponds. That's where it kind of naturally grows, in these very like alkali lakes and ponds. All outside. Yeah, all, out, all outside, covered greenhouses mostly. Okay. Places like India, Peru, Thailand, yeah. Indonesia, um, all over the world. I work with 83 farms right now, and we can produce about 250 million liters of algae in our various farms. Um, there was just like a fermentation industry report that was released that said they, they only produce about 25 million liters collectively in the entire fermentation industry. So, I mean, we're, we're already doing about 10 times that, and I've spent zero dollars on the actual production capacity just huh. because I'm working with farmers instead of having to build and put together these like steel in the ground fermentation plants. Wow. And so in particular, when I look at the efficiency of us being able to do this, and in addition, the fact that it consumes CO2, not absorbs, not, not produces CO2, mm -hmm. I think that what we're doing is a lot more effective way of producing the base level proteins that people require to, to survive and thrive. So a lot of, a lot of what we're up to um, when you're, you're asking about kind of like how it grows, where it grows, how it's carbon negative, um, passively, because these are alkali ponds, they'll absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. So the more surface area that we have, the more CO2 that they'll absorb. The second thing that's really important to note is that we, we ship by, um, by boat, 
And so that reduces our overall impact on the carbon supply chain. And then in addition, after that, what we do is we displace petrochemical-based compounds. And so if I'm displacing something that would be the petrochemical-based color, as an example, like a blue dye one, blue dye two, that means that there's no reason for those ever to be produced ever again. And we completely remove oil compounds from the supply chain. Well, and that's the dream, right? Because then you have a net infinite uh, carbon displacement in back. Because like, if the assumption is that they're they'll consistently use it for the rest of time if they don't have an alternative and they use something that's algae-based and carbon negative, then yeah, you have something that'll completely remove it from the supply chain. And that's, that's the dream for every company out there. Do we have a sense of, you know, just when it comes to these dyes that are currently being used, how much of a carbon footprint that is? Yeah, yeah. So um, something to be said about the reason to start high end and low volume means that the actual impact on the supply chain is pretty minimal until you reach something like textile dyes. Mm -hmm. And so when you consider food dyes, the impact is pretty minimal. It's normally like the last kind of ingredient, not a food label. Uh, When you consider cosmetics, unless you're talking about color cosmetics, it's a little minimal too, but you're having more of the percent of the product as the color itself. Mm -hmm. And then when you're talking about clothing, that dye is hugely impactful and harmful for the environment. And so we're starting with food in particular just because you're consuming it and people feel that impact like immediately. Uh, As we get to textiles, we'll make more and more of an impact on the colors and be able to produce more and more ingredients outside of just colors too. And then maybe talk a little bit about like the the inputs, like water and how much less water it it uses versus other crops. Yeah. On, on some me- metrics, this is, um, we do a, a like kilo per kilo comparison to something like beef as an it's Okay. And uh, I believe it was producing over 2,000 kilos per hectare per season, um, whereas beef would only produce something like one. So on, on orders of magnitude, it's, it's 2,000 times as efficient or something as beef at, at minimum. From a land perspective? From, from a land use perspective, okay. yeah. Uh, from a water usage perspective, um, we can hit about 200 times efficiency, something like that, partially because um, like water usage is a little bit of a misnomer because whatever water you start with is the only water you ever need as long as you help prevent evaporation. And so if you start with something on the order of like a 1,000 liters, um, over the course of 1,000 of, uh, liters, probably the size of this table, over the course of three months, the density of algae would multiply to be the entire mass of the world's oceans because it doubles every day. Wow. And it's hugely, it's incredibly fast growing. Like just think of how quickly algae blooms form. That's how quickly algae grows, right? And so you only really need the volume of water that you start with. I never had to re-up water in any of the algae that I was growing, any of the algae tanks that I was producing to feed myself. Uh, and then in terms of energy costs, if you're growing outdoors, sunlight is free. So... Yeah. We have some farms that have zero energy costs. I mean, maybe a paddle wheel or something like that as a means of mixing the algae to make sure that it doesn't like settle or load or other things like that. But besides that, some of our farms just subsist on uh, natural buoyancy of the algae and uh, never actually mix it and never use any energy except sunlight. Wow. Fascinating. So I'd love for you to like break down the kind of start to finish process of like how you go from, you know, gene editing uh, the DNA to 
getting this out to the farmers for them to grow at scale and then having it come back and then process that and then ship it off to a client. Like give us the kind of, yeah, the traceability yeah, on that. Kind of like farm the table. <laughs> That's exactly. Okay. Like I like, I, I tell people that I like in my company um, to, if Monsanto and Standard Oil had a baby to undo the damage of both those companies. Wow. And it's partially because I love this idea of using the tools uh, these, these kind of tools are double-sided, right? It's like nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. So using the tools that were perpetuated to do evil as a means of undoing the damage of a lot of what has been done. And so in particular, we focus on using genetic engineering and those tools to kind of create a Willy Wonka style effect. So like if I can make snozberries taste like snozberries, I would. I really want to take algae and, and kind of craft it and create all sorts of crazy experiences for people. And in doing so, what we do is we start with DNA and create designer materials that fit whatever specifications of the customers want. So like you can solve tons of downstream processes and problems if you say from the very beginning, we're gonna do something with the customer in mind and we're gonna do something that already meets their needs. And so from the very start, what we do is we work with our strains of algae uh, we work with the DNA as a means of making sure that our colors and pigments have stability. And then uh, with those strains, you take like a little test tube and you only need a little bit to get started. So we send that off to the farm. The farm then has it double every single day. So from that like tabletop size amount, you can get tons and tons and tons over the course of a couple of months. And they go from that little test tube and it doubles and it doubles and it doubles. And eventually you have a big pun and then you have a sieve that you carry through and this is just something where you put a pump in, put it through the sieve, but it's a normal kind of filter. Um, this is something that a lot of fermentation companies have difficulty with, but because we're dealing with this big noodle-like organism, uh, it, it's just like straining spaghetti in essence. So you strain the organism out, you strain like the algae out of there, you then scrape it, you press it, you uh, potentially wash it as well to remove some residual salts, and then you dry it. And many of our farmers end up using either solar drying which is a hugely low energy uh, technique or spray drying. We've been trying to shift them over to more low energy methods of drying, especially because lower temperature, low energy, end up having a better taste and flavor impact. They then send the powder itself to some third-party processing partners that we have that end up using our proprietary processing technology as a means of separating out the pigments from everything else. Mm -hmm. And those pigments then are packaged and sent here to our warehouse, which we then ship out to the customers all over the world. And so um, we are working to make those supply chains a little bit more localized yeah. so that we can ship directly from the processor to the client themselves. Got it. Um, but as it stands right now, a lot of what we do here is uh, applications testing. And so think of it like, hey, if you wanted to make a burger that was using an algae rend instead of bee juice or using anything like that, you could do that here. Uh, we have tested out different things like uh, butter and cheese replacements, done different things here uh, where we've tested out um, all kinds of different foodstuffs. And so uh, we do a lot of the prototyping here in LA. Uh, we do a lot of our research and development here in LA. And then uh, we end up sending it out to the clients and we partner with them as a means of figuring out exactly what they need as a means of replacing those uh, artificial colors that they're using or other sort of like uh, more harmful food ingredients and raw materials in their supply chain. Fascinating. So like the 
How do those farmers get compensated if you're, they're not, you're necessarily, you, they're like partner farmers, but there's some sort of looser partnership. Like how does the business model support this kind of uh, externalized process of yeah. farming it? Yeah. So I think core to our ethos and our belief is that farmers should be at the core of, uh, in, in the center of, of ecosystem change when it comes to food. And we should really support and celebrate and cherish these farmers. And so what we do is many of these farms have just been growing and selling locally uh, algae as a supplement. And so they have an ancient tradition. I mean, sterling has been around since the time of the Aztecs. And it's, it's kind of like the Kinembu tribe around Lake Chad has been growing it since forever. And who am I to come along and tell them how to do it different or better or whatever, right? So we lean pretty heavy on our farmers' experience and then support them by actively paying more than a living wage to them when they're in these different developing countries, mm -hmm. we end up supporting them by providing bulk discounts for uh, different fertilizers, different kinds of uh, programs where we can potentially in the future provide carbon credits or incentives in that kind of way. Uh, we network them and connect them to other farms so they, they can share information. Mm -hmm. uh, we end up entering into a bulk buying agreement and a long-term buying agreement so that they know for sure that they're going to have job security as well. Uh, because for a farmer, really, at the end of the day, all you really want to do is focus on farming. The marketing and selling of a product is kind of a headache. And we we help advocate for them to get in-court licenses and all of the documentation needed by the EPA, USDA, FDA as a means of bringing it into the United States. And so we, we do our best to also celebrate and share our farmers' stories because they're the ones doing work, right? Like at the end of the day, I'm tinkering around with DNA in the lab. And like that, that's cool. But they're the ones who are producing the base level nutrition and ingredients that go into our supply chain. And so a lot of what we do is to support them how, however possible. So is it giving them an alternative kind of crop to grow that's going to, you know, pay them a lot higher for... Yeah, yeah. For volume, well, so, so we've been approached by a couple of farms that have been growing stuff like uh, corn or soy or alfalfa or like broccoli or other things like that, right? And one of the uh, key things that they're asking is, can you show us success stories or models or metrics in which somebody implemented like an algae farm and was able to start generating money from that in a way that, that like, because it's specialty crop, because you get paid more per kilo or something like that, yeah, oh, they're, they're really willing to switch. We've had a bunch of inbound leads asking us to help them set up farming. And I think that's a really clear indicator. Not only are farmers adaptive and willing to try new things, but also this is a potential driver of, of reducing the effects of climate change and absorbing more CO2 in that kind of way. So I'm really excited about incentive programs to enable farmers to do stuff like that. And we, we kind of serve as a bit of a pass-through loan certifier. Meaning that if a farmer wanted a loan to get set up with a farm, we could say, hey, we're going to buy from this farmer uh, as soon as their crop is ready. And we can certify that we're going to consistently buy from this farm so they know they're going to make income off of it and it turns into a really virtuous cycle. Uh, for us, our, our kind of end of things right now is making sure that we have enough demand to support right. all of these farmers however possible. The fascinating ecosystem. Um, to talk, you know, use this term, which I think is really fascinating, is just like a, as a kind of an analog to meat, but like using all parts of the buffalo, right? And, uh, you know, talk to us about like how that looks today with just doing pigments and like where that gets, how that gets separated and but that what that might look like 
as far as like, you know, really making full use of everything that gets harvested? Yeah. So um, I think one of the key challenges in any of these emerging technologies, whether it's fermentation or algae growth or anything like that, is that we're, we're normally focused on one particular compound. And that's partially from uh, the techniques and technologies that stems from, which is all from pharmaceutical uh, development, biopharma, whatnot, because you're focused on producing insulin, you don't care about anything else, right? And so in particular, when we were approaching this problem, um, one of the key elements was, okay, first products that we're going to produce are going to be pigments, and these are going to be purified and extracted pigments. But the only way that you can go about producing this pigment right now, one of the main methods at least, is using solvents. And so you use these solvents to pull the pigment out. But what that means that is the rest of the organism is completely kind of degraded and trash. And you can bury it for carbon credit, potentially. But besides that, you can't really use anything else. All the compounds are degraded. So for us, one of the key things that we took a look at is how do we pull out and separate the pigments similar in nature to separating uh, coffee from the grounds, right? So we start with our algae grounds. We want to separate out the pigment. How do we go about doing that without having uh, all of the grounds get in the remainder? And so we've been using a lot of really interesting membrane techniques as a means of separating out the pigments from everything else. And then I, I hope we'll be able to implement this at scale so that we can use all parts of the algae coming on up. Right now, we've been predominantly focused on pigments because we haven't been able to successfully scale to like a third-party processor uh, our new techniques. And that's currently what we're working on. So at scale, you'd be able to have food companies, textile companies, uh, or food companies using it for protein and for pigments, kind of, and just have it all feeding off the same kind of uh, you know, waste. I mean, the, the key thing that I, I, I relate Sphera more to like a Cargill or an ABM in terms of supplying or Dow DuPont, right? What we want to do is fundamentally change the supply chain. And so we're subsisting on ingredients that are carbon negative. And the impact that we're making is displacing other compounds or petrochemicals that are out there. And so by doing that, that means that we provide a new pillar of uh, potential use for the entire supply chain. I think one of the, the challenges that we're facing is that there, there aren't many um, tools that are currently available to work with algae. And we've had to develop a lot of our own tools to work with organisms like Oscillatoria species or spirulina or like even um, some of these other genetic oddballs that are out there. And so in doing so, I think that what we're trying to do is set up a way of supplying not only food companies with new pigments, flavors, fragrances, texturizing ingredients, proteins, uh, potentially like carbohydrates, fats, other things like that, but uh, starting to take those same ingredients and apply them in other places that you have harm from the petrochemicals industry. Yeah, that, that is a good segue to the next uh, part. So like, I guess, scare us a little bit about, you know, the current uh, status quo of, of these petrochemicals, where they show up. I guess a lot of it is in our, on our clothes, but I talk about the food uh, implications as well. What's making its way into our food? What's it doing to us? Got it, got it. I'm going to talk directly in the camera right now. If we don't do anything to change our current supply chain in the next 10 years, the world will irreparably descend into chaos and anarchy, especially in coastal regions. Like already, just look at LA with just a little bit of rain over the past yeah. days. It's insane. <laughs> 
So to to kind of belittle the effects of climate change is not taking into full account the actual ramifications of what's going on. The days are getting hotter. The actual climate is swinging back and forth in various ways in disastrous implications. And what this really means is that our entire food ecosystem is going to change. And a lot of the core crops that we rely on, ranging from like coffee all the way to animal agriculture, is going to completely just upend because it's not going to be the same. And so in particular, when I look at um, the kind of anti-fragility of systems, this idea of as things get more chaotic and more tense and more problematic, what you really want are localized structures and localized food systems that can supply uh, just your basic nutrition wherever you are. And so a lot of what um, me and the team ended up doing, this is back in 2017, we were investigating different ways of implementing those kind of systems. Uh, and we took a trip to Munich to meet with the World Food Program to see if we could do the same kind of thing that I did in a garage space, space in Richmond, Virginia, uh, at a refugee camp, camp in Kenya. Wow. And the idea was uh, bring um, spirulina with me and then give enough to have these uh, different judges from the World Food Program, Innovation Program, mm -hmm. taste test it to see if we could actually grow enough that they could have a sample in the span of just a couple of days. And the entire point was, what is a rapid response to refugee programs? And we're going to have tons of climate refugees all over the world. And so in particular, what I did was hid all of these three ounce little bottles, like mouthwash bottles, by suitcase, because you have a limit to how much like liquid you can bring. Mm -hmm. So I put all of my spirulina culture in these little three ounce bottles, mm -hmm. and I grew it on my windowsill in the hotel in Munich, and then served it to all of these judges at this World Food Program uh, Accelerator. And what I realized um, in their response, they were amazed. But the caveat to all of that is that the entrenched systems and programs that we have do not support the growth of uh, the base level nutrition on site. So the World Food Program wouldn't exist if there was a way to produce all the nutrition locally. And so they have an internal memo uh, dissuading the use of moringa, baobab, and spirulina, all of which are local crop, crops in Central Africa, and partially because they're supporting entrenched food systems. And so a lot of the organizations, institutions that we are relying on as a means of supplying the base level of nutrition are being rocked by this climate catastrophe that's about to occur. They have no clue how to shift or change. And it's kind of up to each of us as a means of adopting new forms of nutrition, maybe uh, venturing into an adaptive or different kind of mentality when it comes to embracing new technologies as well. There's been a lot of push and motivation, especially by our parents' generation, who saw Monsanto in the 1970s do all sorts of horrible things to agriculture. And therefore, we have this reaction to non-GMO. I, I think that in terms of being able to get past all of this climate catastrophe and really embrace all of these tools that can enable this abundant future that I really dream of, we need to embrace all the tools. We need to be able to try as many things as possible. Because just sticking to these monoculture, mass-scale uh, big agriculture crops that we are used to, the uh, kind of like 13 vegetables and five animals that we always eat is not going to be it. And especially when most of the uh, arable land in which those are produced is going away. So we need to shift and adapt to crops that are resilient and anti-fragile enough. I, I hope that's not too scary. No, I mean, I think, you, you know, 
you give us a lot of hope, you, you and companies like yours. I mean, we got a lot of, we got to be firing on all cylinders here. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, there's, there's enough time to write the ship. Otherwise I, I wouldn't be doing this. Right. So I do think that, um, at the core of it, it's really important that we test and try out as many different things as possible. I guess, um, Talk about kind of this idea of like a circular local kind of system or economy sure. around algae and what that, what that might look like in the future. Um, you know, right now it involves, you know, shipping cultures out to Southeast Asia and then having it come all the way back. There's companies working on this from a fermentation standpoint that are doing vertical farming, I guess, of algae and that's their vision, right? How do you get this to become something that is a, uh, more decentralized, hyper-local. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of that stems on the, from like relying on the farmers as kind of core of a system of any sort. And um, one of the things that I didn't mention in the history of the company is that we sold home bioreactors for a time. So for about two years, I, hold, I sold a home system in which you could flip a, flip a tap and be able to get a shot of spirulina every day. And in doing so, the idea was to enable people to provide for their own basic nutrition in the same kind of way that I did when I first got started. And I still think that that is kind of core to the ethos of what we're doing is reforming the supply chain. So it's hyper local and enabling people to be able to produce on site. So in a building like this, as an example, like even 100,000 square feet or something like that would be able to supply nutrition for most of Los Angeles wow. if you were growing algae in you know vertical farms the hell arrangement of some sort. like a fermentation process or actual pond no these these would be sort of like flat wall plates and like stacked together and okay. have to have a lot of density but like to that point if you wanted base level protein mm -hmm. you do it in a tiny space if you really wanted to and so when i'm imagining a future of us being able to provide for our basic necessities i think of it kind of like um we're in a biosphere of sorts right we are in this beautiful pale blue dot of earth and we have this ability of providing for all of our basic necessities. But if the earth is off kilter, then imagine us in, in more hyper-local systems, these, these little tiny biospheres of the local communities that we're surrounded by. Um, I think that it would be amazing to provide for the basic ingredients that go into the tacos that you eat on your taco crawl. Being <laughs> able to provide for all of the different perfume ingredients or all of the different uh, cosmetic ingredients as opposed to having these giant international global supply chains. And the only ingredients that we really need are sun, air, water, and a little bit of salt. And so that's really key to our central ethos. And eventually I imagine our company transforming from more of this hub and spoke model yeah. where it's all coming to Los Angeles and coming out right, to something that's more like a land in its band is what I call it, where if we're producing a pigment in India, uh, we would be able to supply textile producers in India with that pigment as a means of dyeing that fabric before it went to a manufacturer. And so it's all manufactured and then sold locally. And that's really key is that we want to bring our supply chains closer to us, bring, bring our businesses closer to us so that we have more of a relationship with the basic materials, ingredients, and things that we use on a day-to-day basis and we have a whole lot more respect for them and have this idea of, okay, well, when this is done, what happens to it? And since we're producing biological-based materials, it all breaks down and degrades in the environment. 
like you can throw this away and not have to worry about it sticking around. And that's really key is the ability to potentially toss something or uh, exchange it for something else and then not have to worry about what happens next. When we talk about like getting us to a point where these major CPG companies start to reevaluate their ingredients and we think about the incentives in our food system and what is going on with, you know, the USDA ensuring the prices of commodity crops, et cetera. Uh, how do we get to a point where this is a financially no-brainer, you know, a, a financial no-brainer for a company to to say, we want to swap this out. It's not just that we're doing it out of the goodness of our heart because we care about the planet. How do we get to a point of price parity and where are we right now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I would say that there's probably like three layers here. So the first is um, you talked about agriculture. And I would I would kind of classify what we're doing as, as very much like more agriculture technology or biotech or like we do a lot in food technology, but a lot of what I've done in the past is take a look at agriculture policies to figure yeah. out where is that tipping point. And whenever you take a look at the farm bill, that subsidized uh, agriculture, especially in crop insurance for stable crops. If you have something labeled as a staple crop, it ends up receiving crop insurance. Therefore, farmers are able to plant that crop, not have to worry about flooding, weather damage, anything like that. They still get money from the government if the crop fails. Therefore, I think that the removal of crop insurance from subsidies is going to be one of the most impactful things to agriculture. You see this mirrored in what happened to New Zealand in the 1970s. And what is probably happening to India right now with a lot of the farmers, the government decided to remove a lot of those subsidies, a lot of that crop insurance, and it completely transformed the agriculture, therefore making New Zealand one of the most prominent agricultural producers in the entire area because they had to innovate. They couldn't stick to yeah. same old staple crops. Mm -hmm. So I think number one thing that we could do legislatively mm -hmm. is probably remove that, uh, remove the crop insurance provision of the farm bill. I mean, the second thing is to enable these kind of like financial structures that I was talking about before. So you could provide a loan to a farmer to experiment with something new, a new kind of crop. It actually enables this really positive feedback loop, especially if you're orienting that in a climate-centric manner. And so demonstrating the fact that they're able to make more of an income on specialized crops, experimenting new things, means that we have a much more robust and uh, a much more robust to handle any of these climate shocks, right? The more diversity and biodiversity we have, the better it is. And then lastly, I think that one of the key things about these companies is the recognition that you are going, I call it death by a thousand cuts. Many of these big companies, whether it's Campbell's Soup or uh, Kellogg's or General Mills or any of these big food companies are now having their market share eaten away by small companies. Right. And what they end up doing at the end of the day is just buying whoever's biggest. And they incorporate the company into their yeah. brand and they just keep on doing that. And so in order to start adopting more of this innovation mindset in something that's a little bit more rapid, I think that many of these companies need to uh, really enable their innovation teams within the company, kind of like what DARPA does for its program managers, where it mm -hmm. says, hey, we're going to give you a big budget to go find and seed innovation teams all over the place and pay for pilots yeah. and pay for really robust pilots so that we can actually see what is going to be the most effective at yeah. implementing in any kind of way. The risk that they're taking on uh, at a, such a large scale, the exposure, I was talking to McDonald's innovation team, that's an example, mm -hmm. and they serve 67 million people every single day. Wow. They're not going to work with a small startup of like 15 or so people. They're not going to do that. And the only reason that they're talking to these startups 
is as a means of saving face when they go to report to a chief innovation officer or somebody else like that at the company and say, hey, you know, we talked to this many startups. This is the metric that we're working on. If you make their job a lot easier, a lot more effective, where you can showcase, hey, there's this marketing push or something else that they can end up doing, then it makes it so that the big companies start shifting and adopting things far faster. And um, I mean, I think that we really need to disconnect a lot of these food tech companies from this hype cycle where it's over-promising and under-delivering. Yeah. There is nobody's going to believe them in the first place. Many of these big food companies buy into the hype cycle, though, and put money into uh, something that will get a lot of press, but isn't something. <laughs> and so you see this greenwashing happening all of the time. And so the only thing that can really make a difference is focusing in on local test pilot tests and these companies actually putting money where their mouth is and it's spending real money to support young startups. Love it. Preach that all day. Kind of as we come out of this, come towards the end of this conversation, it's been really eye-opening and a lot has been over my head, but I'm definitely learning a lot. What do you see as kind of, if you were to, you talked about McDonald's, like, if you had your, if you had it your way, <laughs> I don't know if that's Burger King or McDonald's. It's one of them. Yeah. What are some of the applications that you would be excited to see ten years from now to help us put us on the right track when it comes to food and beverage? You've hinted at some of them. We've talked about algae burgers. Yeah. You can get those today. We can get out. We can get spirulina as an expensive uh, protein smoothie add-on. We can do uh, Elliot's cream cheese spirulina <laughs> uh, kind of. Schmear. Sure. But what are some really out there ideas on that thread of like, you have your own like little system at home that sure. you can hit a button. Like, what does that thing spitting out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, like a lot of what I like doing in terms of self-experimentation is playing with that very edge of the possible. Right. So like whether it's coming up with my own hair dye that's based on algae yeah. or working on uh, I taught a class on genetically engineering perfumes, mm -hmm. doing different things related to like scent and uh, time-dependent release of perfumes or, or scent memory or other things like that. I think that my, my dream, and I think the dream of most, most food scientists, if you, if you had the ability, is to create a food replicator of some sort. Yeah. And this idea where you have a device where you could come up to it and say, Earl Grey tea hot. Right. Head and press a button and it would do that, Right. And I think with uh, something that is known as like a digital to biological converter, you can go from information to actual implementable biological material. And something like that, and this is a aura of future, would enable us to get closer to that like home growing unit, the, the kind of uh, food replicator that we're looking for. And um, we would be able to implement new smells or tastes or textures in the organisms while they're growing in there as the, the main starting material. And so you could potentially get something to spit out like maybe a familiar food like a hot dog or like a hamburger or something like that. Or it could be something completely uh, designed that we have no clue mm -hmm. exists yet. And to me, like I, I take a lesson from hummus. And hummus is just blended chickpeas, right? Yeah. Blended garbanzo beans. And before Sabra came along, no one knew about hummus. They came up with the name hummus. Hummus doesn't really even eat much of anything. <laughs> and so I like to take a look at the foods now and I'm like, well, why are we trying to recreate the same food stuff right. that we've always had? Why are we trying to make the cream cheeses? Right. 
jyoti or the whatever it is, right? And just represented it a different kind of way. Why can't we just imagine a future in which the foods that we eat and the representations that they're in, like whoever invented PB&J in the first place was a yeah. genius. <laughs> so, so like things like that where... One of my heroes, besides Willy Wonka, is George Washington Carver. Mm -hmm. George Washington Carver took the peanut and then came up with 300 different uses for it. And so for me, I take a look at algae and I'm like, how do I come up with as many uses as possible yeah. so that it becomes a core staple of our food supply chain? So it becomes a core staple of what we're using on a day-to-day -day basis so that 10 years from now when I pack for a trip or I'm going on an expedition or something like that, yeah. I'll, I'll be packing things and most of the things that I bring with me, if not all of them, have something algae related in them. And then that's really what I'm looking for. Well, I can't wait to see that future. As you were describing that, I was thinking open AI meets food replicator with algae in it. I was like, yeah. just spit out, just like keep feeding on this AI and keep coming up with that next <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, yeah. Whatever is the next PB&J, you've heard it here. Elliot, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm all in on algae now. Um, I was dipping my toe in the in the pond, so to speak, before, but now now you have me convinced. <laughs> um, if people, if brands are listening to this, um, tell tell them how they can get samples, how they can get started. If there's any uh, roles you're hiring for, or just anything in general, people want to learn more. How do, how do they get involved? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, all of our socials are at Spira Inc. S P I R A I N C. Uh, if you want to get samples, we, we give out free samples all the time. So seriously, if you email us info at spheroinc.com uh, and or go to our website, you have the ability to request samples through the contact form or just order them straight up through the products page. We are shipping out blue, green, red, yellow. We're going to have an updated version of the red, uh, possibly an orange coming on out. Those are secret. So you heard it here first. Breaking news. <laughs> um, some of the other things that are going on, we are opening up our official seed fundraised. Uh, we've been quite quiet the past couple of years and have only raised a tiny bit of money and then have been making most of our money through sales or grants. So this is the first official opportunity to invest in Spira. If you want to invest, you can contact me, Elliot at Spira Inc. E-L-L-I-O-T. Um, but then beyond that, we're hiring. So a couple of different roles, mostly in the laboratory here in Los Angeles. We're hiring for bioengineers. Uh, we're hiring for chemical engineers. And then in particular, we're looking for a couple of people that are going to help in terms of marketing and sales. So if you fit any of those roles, if you're interested, please reach out. More than happy to connect. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.